Professor Marianne from our hen house, her knowledge overflows. Legislation from cat to pig to mouse, she knows all of those. Critter defenders from across the globe share their stories first to last. So welcome to what we now know as the Animal Law Podcast. It's the Animal Law Podcast. Welcome to the Animal Law Podcast. It's episode six. I can't believe we've done five episodes already, and here we are on our, on our sixth. It seems like no time at all has passed since we started doing this, and it's been so great, and I love all the feedback I've gotten, and I'm really excited that there are a lot of people listening who aren't lawyers, and I'll try to avoid using uh, words in Latin, though, you know, it's hard to stop us from doing that. But I, I've heard from a lot of lawyers, too, so, oh, well... I'm real excited. I hope you guys are too. I'm also excited by the fact that Jasmine and I are shortly on our way to Paris. And I'm very thrilled that I was invited to speak at a conference there uh, sponsored by La Fondation Droit Animal, Ethique et Science. I just exhausted any French that I have. Fortunately, I will be presenting in English. And the conference will be held at UNESCO headquarters. And now, I mean, I honestly don't know whether we're supposed to be nervous about going to Paris or not. So we're just going to not be and just and just proceed and feel like feel like we're doing something good by going to Paris and and being supportive. I I don't know how else to think about it. And I really have been looking forward to this for so long. I mean, largely because it's Paris, but also because it's really great privilege to be able to present at this conference. It's a I'm writing a paper with Professor Tammy Bryant, of course, who teaches animal law at UCLA Law School. And she is brilliant and it was her concept for the paper and I will be presenting the paper at this conference. And it's basically about why it's so hard to get laws to quote-unquote stick in the United States when those laws are meant to protect animals. And as probably many of you already know, this is really a big problem. Even in spite of how incredibly difficult it is to get those laws passed and how much fighting goes on in the process of getting those laws passed and how reduced the protections are that we would like to get passed by the time you actually get them authorized by any legislature, even then they get to the courts and too often they disappear. And we'll be talking about that, or I'll be talking about that in Paris, and our paper will be discussing it in somewhat more detail. And I think most of the speakers there will be speaking on animal welfare issues, uh, and I'll be speaking a little bit more on legislative issues. So uh, I'm pretty excited about it. And some of the examples we're considering including in that discussion, uh, the first and foremost is probably going to be the situation revolving around foie gras, and that's because the French are particularly interested in that issue, of course, since it's a very traditional French food and since uh, it's very protected in France, and it's kind of a hot-button issue. I hope nobody gets mad at me. I hope nobody gets mad at me because I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, though I pronounce it a lot better than a lot of people do, I can tell you that. And 
As you probably know, California passed a law banning the force feeding and sale of foie gras. It passed the law a long time time ago, but it had a a long lead in period, and it finally got implemented. And it had the it had a ban on both producing foie gras, which was at the time produced in California. It no longer is, of course. And also on selling it, uh, selling foie gras if, if that foie gras was produced by force feeding. And, you know, all foie gras is produced by force feeding, except for I know of one guy in France who claims that his geese just eat really a lot and that the product that uh, is produced from their livers once they're killed and cut open is, is foie gras. And, you know, that's kind of neither here nor there because all the rest of the foie gras everywhere is produced by force feeding. And force feeding is a pretty horrible thing. You know, they stick these tubes down the geese or the ducks' throats and, and put in way too much grain. And a lot of people focus on the horror of the force feeding itself. And that's bad enough. Or in French, I think, French, I think it's known as gavage. And that's bad enough. But really... I think one of the even worse parts of it has, is how sick these animals get by the time they're slaughtered. I mean, they have severe, severe liver disease by the time they go to slaughter. Anyway, so this law got passed. Unbelievable. I mean, unbelievable. I guess it's largely because foie gras isn't really that popular in the United States. And then once the ban went into effect, a lot of uh, high-end restaurants uh, that serve foie gras, there was a lot of these ridiculous, stupid protests and hysteria about it. And they brought a lawsuit, and the court actually held in their favor that the um, Federal Poultry Products Inspection Act actually regulates ingredient requirements for poultry products. And banning livers produced by force feeding is the same as regulating one of the ingredients. And because a federal law regulates that, the state could not regulate it. And it was preempted from regulation. So I think that's a pretty bogus decision. And it is on appeal. And actually, I think ALDF just argued that case very recently. So presumably we should have a decision pretty soon. Probably on the day I have to present this paper, so I'll have to rewrite it in two and a half seconds. And so we'll be talking about, uh, or I'll be talking about that decision, which I understand is very notable to uh, a French audience. And uh, some other, just a lot of decisions where animal laws just don't stick in the U.S. And preemption is frequently one of the reasons that that happens is that, you know, one of the few Supreme Court cases involving animals, National Meat Association versus Harris, which which had to do with that California downer law, didn't didn't affect the cow issue because cow downer cows are no longer permitted to go to slaughter in federal slaughterhouses because of mad cow disease. But all the other animals, it's the same problem. And this is particularly true for pigs. A lot of times they will end up at the slaughterhouse too sick or too disabled to walk. And, you know, with pigs, that can happen a lot because they're so enormous by the time they go to slaughter. And so... California passed this law protecting down pigs, saying they can't go to slaughter, they have to be humanely euthanized, as well as other animals, not just pigs, but pigs are really the big problem. And the the pork producers, the National Meat Association, um, brought a lawsuit, an unbelievable decision from the Supreme Court. They they The animals had been successful in the Ninth Circuit, and yet the Supreme Court said that the Federal Meat Inspection Act 
was broadly, broadly preemptive, read it extraordinarily broadly, and said that California couldn't pass a law protecting these downed pigs at slaughter. It was really a ridiculous decision as well. I mean, I'm not such saying these decisions were ridiculous. They they really were pretty bad decisions. Uh, Prop 2, of course, has also been challenged. Prop 2 was the ballot initiative where just moral gestation crates, veal crates, and battery cages were banned. I mean, they weren't the, the language was different than that, but essentially they were banned. And Prop 2 has largely survived the challenges to it so far, but they have really been relentless. Uh, the egg industry in particular um, argued that the sizes of the cages for hens was unclear in the statute, which said that the hens had enough had to have enough room to be able to turn around. They lost on that. The court said that it was it was perfectly understandable what that meant. And then they tried to get federal legislation passed, which would prohibit the states from mandating housing requirements for farmed animals. That was unsuccessful. And then they sued uh, Missouri. It's the state, a bunch of states that have large egg industries and that are quite beholden to the egg industries, um, sued and and regarding the California law that prohibits selling eggs. It's a, it was a kind of coda to Prop 2. Prop 2, the ballot initiative, banned the production, the use of, of these production systems on animals in California. And then the California legislature, in order to protect the California egg industry, jumped in and said, well, you can't, nobody can sell eggs in California to, that weren't raised in compliance with Prop 2, even if they were laid by hens who were living elsewhere. And the Missouri and other states who love selling their eggs in California uh, say this is in violation of the Commerce Clause. They lost that in the district court, but uh, on standing, and they are still on appeal. So it's never really been dealt with on the merits. Really, like, it's so... We could lose that, too. It's just so crazy. I think that one's pretty safe. But, you know, I thought the other two were safe, too. So what do I know? You know, another another example, an old one that I think that I'm thinking of including in this paper, I haven't really decided yet, is the whole mice, rats and birds saga. It's kind of a different issue. And it has to do with the Animal Welfare Act. And, you know, mice, rats and birds raised for research were always covered by the Animal Welfare Act when it was written. There was no exception for them. And then the USDA wrote a regulation that mice, rats, and birds used in research were just exempted. And they actually uh, lost in a lawsuit brought by ALDF and, and where the court said, well, you can't just say mice, rats, and birds aren't animals, which is basically what you're saying here. You can't just write them out of this law because you want to. The law says animals. The law doesn't provide an exemption for these particular species, and you can't just exempt them. It did, you know, it does result in exempting ninety-five percent of the animals used in research, and and then um, probably in the most frustrating move in the history of animal law, they so they actually managed to. They hadn't actually won the case, but the court had strongly indicated and uh, that it was actually this was not an ALDF suit. Um, it, it it was uh, a different plaintiff. But the court in that case strongly indicated that it was going to go with the animal protection organizations. And at that point, the USDA said, okay, we'll, we'll just write the regulations. And the biomedical industry ran to Congress and actually got mice, rats, and birds written out of the statute, actually got the statute revised. And that was just pathetic. I mean, why, like, like I said, we just can't seem to get anything 
thing to stick. Um, and Tammy was the one who brilliantly thought of that as a topic, bringing together all of these, all of these incidents, which really makes you think of why is this? I mean, obviously the power of the industry is the fundamental reason by it. Um, and, but there's also particularly some particularly American issues. One is the intricacy of the interaction between federal and state law, which causes all these preemption problems. And so, that can really create a place where the courts can find issues, where plaintiffs can raise issues as to preemption and and make arguments that if the courts are disposed to side with industry, they will have something to hang their hat on. There's also, you know, this is America, and there's a lot of resistance, just whether in the courts or in the society or in the legislature, to limiting rights in private property. And of course, animals are private property. And even if that those changes are in the name of progressive change by way of legislation and regulation. I, it's just not, it's, it's, it's just not a very, um, the American way. And they, it's very American to think that market forces should rule these changes, not legislation that people should not be forced to do things with private property. It's a more philosophical difference, but I think it, it, uh, it does have its play. and all, But all of these things just present opportunities, as I said, that the industry and the, the indust- any powerful force uh, can take advantage of, that can, it can appeal to the courts and say, you have, some, you have a reason to side with us here if you're predisposed to do so. And where most decision makers and most judges are meat eaters, and in my opinion, therefore, necessarily in denial about what's really going on, because you have to be in order to eat the meat, it ends up like we lose a lot of these, these progressive changes. Uh, and the upshot is that lawyers and advocates are focusing elsewhere on corporate campaigns. Uh, is, is has been a huge focus, and and consumer protection litigation is another area because the law protecting consumers is a lot better than the law protecting animals. And as Tammy quite brilliantly brought up in supporting vegan businesses, that you know that's that's an area where lawyers are focusing on in this country that perhaps is not going on in Europe where they have been somewhat more successful in making regulatory changes. My favorite example of that is the Hampton Creek issue. Look at, you know, what's happened to Hampton Creek. They have to be dealing with the FDA that's told them that their mayo isn't mayonnaise according to their definition, so they can't sell it. And and they've had to do all these Freedom of Information Act petitions uh, to get the information to show that the egg board has been undermining them in violation of the law. That's all. That all needs lawyers. So that's fun. That's those are fun campaigns for for lawyers. And I know Tammy is working on an article, setting out a lot more ways that that this is uh, a direction in which lawyers in the United States are, are moving. It does leave one with feelings of despair about the law. Like why, even when we have progressive change, can't we hold on to it? It you know, which brings me back to the fact that we'll be presenting this paper in Paris and that, you know, nothing's creating more despair in all of our hearts and minds right now than what's been happening in Paris. And, and how are we ever going to fix everything that's wrong with the world? I mean, we're working on these issues that seem so hopeless sometimes, and, and we're constantly trying to bring a positive attitude towards them. And, and, and yet they are hardly the only issue in the world that seems hopeless. Everything seems to be going crazy. They're just humans, you know, humans. They're just... They have a love affair with violence and with really with death. I mean, 
humans just seem to love to cause death. And what is the law in the face of that kind of passion? Okay. All right. I know I've, I've gotten you a little down now. <laughs> um, cheer up. Because today's guest is going to be talking about success. Thank God we have Anna here today because she is going to be talking about a campaign that has actually seen an unusual level of success. In the time I've been, I've been involved in animal rights, uh, there have not been that many of them. And and I've seen this one ebb and flow. And and Anna Frostick is the senior attorney for wildlife and animal research for the Humane Society of the United States Animal Protection Litigation Department. And she has led HSUS's legal efforts on numerous actions to improve the lives of captive animals and wildlife. Today we're going to talking be talking to her about a multi-year, multifaceted effort to protect America's captive chimpanzees, which has I, I'm I'm not kidding you, which has seen a considerable amount of success. Welcome to the Animal Law Podcast, Anna. Thank you. Nice to be here. We're so excited you're here, mainly because we hardly ever get to talk to anybody who's had any successes. <laughs> They're so rare. And you've been having quite a year, and we're very, very excited to hear about it. Thank you. Especially on the legal front, I think successes are pretty few and far between for lawyers. But as I said, uh, you've been having successes and your successes have, have gone to the benefit of chimpanzees in the United States and they've really come a long way in the past year. But I know it's also a campaign that's been building for many years. This was not a one-step process. But let's, let's get started with some basics. How many chimpanzees are actually in the United States and where are they situated? So the U.S. is home to likely more chimpanzees than any other country outside of their African uh, range states. And we are estimating that there are approximately 1,700 chimps in the United States. Um, And that number is largely um, composed of approximately 700 chimps that are still in biomedical laboratories. Um, those are five different laboratories, and about half of that population is owned by the federal government and half owned by the laboratories that are either affiliated with state universities or private corporations. Um, and then we have the next largest group of chimps that are approximately 550 currently in accredited sanctuaries in the United States. And then approximately 275 that are in um, zoos that are accredited by the Association of Zoos and Aquariums and managed pursuant to a species survival plan. And then we have approximately 200 that are distributed throughout the country, either in people's backyards or other exhibition facilities that are not accredited by AZA. So that's the, the total brings to about 1,700. And it really covers the gamut of, of the way we use animals uh, in, in many ways, except that we don't eat chimpanzees, but we do almost everything else to them. So what laws do we currently have that govern the treatment of these animals? And, and let's start specifically with the Animal Welfare Act. What does it provide and who does it apply to? So the Animal Welfare Act is our basic federal law that provides minimum standards for animals, warm-blooded animals um, that are kept in research facilities and exhibition facilities. Um, The law also applies to animal dealers. 
And so there's different requirements um, for research facilities than there are for licensed facilities, but they have a lot of similarities and um, issues like minimum cage size and uh, enhancement that has to be provided to the environments uh, that chimps are set in. And the minimum cage size under the Animal Welfare Act for chimpanzees is actually five by five by seven feet. So federal law allows uh, fairly small enclosures under those minimum standards of the Animal Welfare Act. Yeah, fairly small is a very generous description Absolutely. of that. And I, I mean, I always say when we talk about the Animal Welfare Act that that it's you know it's heavily criticized and with very good reason and re- what it really does provide is minimal care but but it's a lot better than what it would be if we didn't have the animal welfare act that's right, and I think another uh, really important component of it is the oversight that goes along with that. So again, even though the U.S. Department of Agriculture is enforcing kind of bare minimum standards under the Animal Welfare Act, it does provide a mechanism for members of the public and interested organizations to kind of monitor what's going on in some of these facilities because USDA publishes inspection reports that are available um, for everybody to see to, to understand whether there have been violations the Animal Welfare Act and kind of keep tabs on the number of animals and types of animals that are at these registered and licensed facilities. Now, of course, in addition to the Animal Welfare Act, the Endangered Species Act is applicable to chimpanzees. And I think a lot of people still think that, that the Endangered Species Act only applies to animals living in the wild, but that's not, that's not actually the case. Is that right? And let's just speak generally, not specifically about the special case of chimpanzees, which I know is a little bit more complex, but just as a general matter. That's right. So as of September of this year, the Endangered Species Act applies to all captive chimpanzees as well as those who are living in the wild. And that's true of the Endangered Species Act generally, that protections extend to animals um, that are in captivity when they are of species that are listed as either threatened or endangered. And the Endangered Species Act sets out a process for Fish and Wildlife Service, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, to list species and then apply certain levels of protection to those listed species depending on whether they're listed as endangered or as threatened. Uh, But generally, it's a mechanism to regulate interstate movement of those animals, import and export of listed species, as well as a concept called take. And and what does take? I know it means a lot. Yes. <laughs> There's a lot of cases out there concerning what take means in this context. And it just it, as as minimally as you can, explain to us what take means. Absolutely. So the statutory definition is effectively anything that harms or harasses or kills or wounds an animal. Um, so anything that causes them physical harm is, is the general concept that we're talking about. And does that apply... Does the prohibition on on take and the interstate transport apply to both endangered and threatened species? So the statute only applies those prohibitions to endangered species. And the statute allows Fish and Wildlife Service to establish species-specific protections for threatened species. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, in response to that authority, has created a regulation that generally applies the same prohibitions to both threatened and endangered species unless they have come up with a species-specific regulation for those threatened species. And how do these terms actually come to be interpreted when when it comes to captive animals? It's pretty easy to imagine what hunting, shooting, and wounding means when you're talking about animals living in the wild. But what do these terms mean 
in the real world when it when you're talking about captive animals? How have they been interpreted? So it's a great question, certainly where there's been a lot of nuance and, and back and forth between the animal protection community and the agency and, and some differing opinions in what the law actually means and requires. Um, I think there's there's broad agreement that certainly um, killing an animal is a take, um, and so that comes up in the captive setting when you're talking about um, captive hunting ranches or some type of invasive research that's going to result in the death of an animal, for example. Um, but there's much more gray area when it comes to the concept of harassment and what constitutes harassing a captive individual and whether that includes, you know, depriving them of um, species-typical behaviors um, and kind of the extent of what that includes will be different depending on each species. So, and it, I mean, I just think it's interesting and I think it's something that people don't generally know about that that these prohibitions on harassing and harming and killing, they really apply to the individual animal even though the act is meant to protect the species as a whole. When it comes down to applying it, you're really protecting individual animals from certain kinds of harms. Absolutely, and that's especially true when you're talking about applying the ESA in the captive setting. Yeah, yeah. And you, you mentioned that the Fish and Wildlife Service administers the, the Endangered Species Act. And my understanding is that up until recently, and, and we'll get to that in a second, chimpanzees have had a very special status, and you, you alluded to this, in the way that the Endangered Species Act has been administered. Not the way the statute is written, but the way that, that it's been interpreted by the agency. And that, that is, uh, refers to split listing. And can you, can you explain what split listing has been? Sure. So uh, beginning in 1976, the Fish and Wildlife Service listed chimpanzees as threatened. And because it was a threatened listing that authorized the service to come up with these one, one of these, quote, special rules for the species. And in the 70s, when they adopted a special rule, the special rule effectively said, even though chimpanzees are threatened in the wild, we are not going to apply any of the Endangered Species Act protections to individuals that are in captivity. Um, that proceeded to be the rule for the next approximately 15 years. Um, in the late 80s, the Humane Society of the United States, Jane Goodall Institute, and the World Wildlife Fund petitioned the Fish and Wildlife Service to list chimpanzees as endangered in recognition of the significant declines that the wild populations had faced over those uh, decades intervening. At that time, in response to that petition, the Fish and Wildlife Service agreed that chimpanzees in the wild were endangered and changed the listing, but only changed it for the wild populations and continued to maintain a threatened listing with the special rule that says no protections for chimpanzees in captivity in the U.S., and that's what we refer to as the split listing, this differential listing for wild populations versus captive populations, endangered versus threatened. Now, was there any kind of precedent, or has even, even since then, have there been other species that had this kind of split listing? Because it doesn't seem to be authorized by the statute. It is certainly in our opinion, not authorized by the statute, and that it was the subject of, of much later discussion. Um, but, you know, as far as the uniqueness of the situation, it was relatively unique, uh, very unique, but there were a few other types of listings that have been compared to it. Um, for example, the Fish and Wildlife Service is the primary agency that implements um, 
the Endangered Species Act for terrestrial species, but the National Marine Fisheries Service implements the law for marine species, and they, up until recently, had a somewhat similar listing where a certain population of killer whales listed as endangered, um, but that same level of protection was not being applied to the only captive individual from that population. Um, slightly different because it wasn't an endangered versus threatened listing, instead endangered versus no protection. Um, so in that way, the, the chimp situation is fairly unique. Yeah, it, I, it, I can imagine that the killer whale situation had to do a lot with, with the lobbying of the display industry, the world and others. I don't know whether that's correct, but, but would you say that the this is prim- this was primarily rooted in lobbying from the biomedical industry that was doing experimentation on chimpanzees when it comes to the split listing of the chimps. Absolutely, and and there's evidence from the Fish and Wildlife Service's files from that 1990 listing um, that make extremely clear that the reason for that differential listing was in order to facilitate biomedical research on chimps. And how much biomedical research have we done on chimps, and and what sort of research has it been? I remember when I first got started in the in the um, animal rights movement, which was a long time ago. <laughs> We won't go into how long, but uh, it was when the Coulston Foundation was still in business, and the mm-hmm. the research being done on chimpanzees was hideous, brutal, and and really, it was hard to argue for any kind of necessity whatsoever. They were actually doing product testing on chimpanzees. What kind of what kind of work did they do with chimpanzees, and has that evolved over the years since since this uh, ruling was first enacted? Absolutely. We've certainly seen a wide variety of research uh, that U.S. laboratories have conducted on captive chimps. Um, A lot of the work in the 80s in particular and the 90s was focused on trying to find a cure for AIDS. And so that was when we saw a huge ramp up in the amount of breeding that the labs were doing in order to um, increase their colonies that they could use for this research that they thought was going to be very promising. It turned out that even when chimps are infected with HIV, they do not develop AIDS symptoms in the same way that humans do, which largely meant that that model was not a good biomedical model. There's also been significant research that has occurred in regards to hepatitis vaccine research, both A, B, and C. Um, There's been some uh, monoclonal antibody research and other types of vaccine research. So it's, it's really run the gamut, but effectively it's everything from, you know, intentionally infecting a chimp with a human disease, taking a lot of samples to see how the disease has progressed, for example, by doing biopsies of the liver. And so it's, it's fairly invasive, uh, historically has been fairly invasive, the types of techniques that have been used. And so there we were for a long time. And I get the feeling that, well, obviously, HSUS has been working on this for a long time since it was right there with the endangered listing back in the 80s. But And there seemed to be a gradual ramp up in in just public perception that that research on chimpanzees had a lot of problems going on. And a lot of, uh, I think that, that happened internationally as well. And, and another thing that was, I think was getting in the way, correct me if I'm wrong, in the way of animal advocates doing anything about this split listing or, or trying to do something about it was that 
there wasn't any place to put the chimps. I mean, if, if, if you got them out. And, and that is, I think, where the Chimp Act comes in. Am I correct? And can you tell us about it? Yeah, certainly the CHIMP Act, um, the Chimpanzee Health Improvement Maintenance and Protection Act from 2000 is a law that, that absolutely did promote the expansion of sanctuaries um, in the U.S. that have the capacity to take in chimps who were used for biomedical research. And what that law does is, is establish a national chimpanzee sanctuary system that um, Congress provides a certain level of funding for, but it's a public-private partnership with the contracted sanctuary, which is currently and always has been Chimp Haven in Louisiana. And that that law sets up a mechanism by which the National Institutes of Health is required to send federally owned chimpanzees to that National Chimpanzee Sanctuary when they are no longer needed for research. And it just, that just seems to me, I mean, it just shows like what a long-term many peace campaign it has been to get chimpanzees. Rose is very upset about the whole thing. I don't know whether you can hear her in the background. Um, it, it, it's, there's been a lot of pieces to this, and it seems to me that the, those, that sanctuary was an enormously important part of the campaign to get chimpanzees out of biomedical research. I remember that there were some complaints when it was passed that um, the animal advocacy organizations that had supported it, which was, of course, primarily HSUS, but others as well, and that they were betraying the chimps by the fact that it had a loophole, which allowed the chimps that had been retired to be returned to research. And that was actually fixed. Is that correct? That's right. So when the law was first passed as, as part of a political concession, there was a loophole that allowed chimps to be returned to labs for research in certain emergency situations. Um, and that loophole was eliminated in 2007. And so for the majority of the implementation of that law, there has never been the opportunity to recall chimps out of sanctuary. And all of the chimps that have been retired to sanctuary under that law continue to enjoy uh, sanctuary for their lifetimes. And, and, and funding has been increased since then, is, is that right? Yes, so there, the law itself has a mechanism by which the federal government and the sanctuary have to share the expenses, but we have, um, in 2013, did acquire additional appropriation authority from Congress uh, to continue funding the sanctuary system beyond this cap that was originally established in the 2000 law. And so it just seemed like everything very slowly over many years was falling into place to provide the opportunity or this appropriate setting to go after this uh, split listing that, that was really not as you said, supported by the statute. I know that one other issue about going after split listing that I heard people speak about is the fear that in the past, if animal organizations won, the biomedical industry would just run right to Congress and get them to change the, the Endangered Species Act. You know, like, you know uh, we've had a lot of Pyrrhic victories in this movement, and it seemed like that was a really possible one. But, but you decided to go after it any, anyway. Did you just decide that the time was right? So as you noted, this has certainly been a, a long-standing campaign, and I think it's really been one characterized by, you know, pushing every lever possible. And 
you know, certainly congressional backlash on Endangered Species Act issues is always of concern. We're, you know, fighting those issues right now in Congress, not related to chimps, thankfully, but related to wolves and other contentious species where there has been um, congressional overriding of agency actions on protecting species. Um, so the Endangered Species Act has always been somewhat contentious. I think for the chimp situation, one factor that really played to our advantage was the fact that simultaneous to us pursuing this regulatory route with the Fish and Wildlife Service, we were working on a bill in Congress to flat out prohibit invasive research on any great ape. And so at the same time that we were working on the regulatory mechanism, we had a process in place by which we were educating members of Congress about the importance of stopping biomedical research on chimpanzees. And I certainly think that that effort, even though that law was never enacted, was a valuable effort to, to really ensure that we had the backstop in Congress that we needed. That That's really interesting. And it, it shows how how multifaceted this kind of campaign has to be. And there was also another facet from what I understand. There was stuff going on with the NIH at the same time. Can you explain a little bit about what the NIH is and how it affects uh, funding for chimpanzee research? Absolutely. So the NIH is the National Institutes of Health, which is part of the Department of Health and Human Services. And it's the federal agency that funds biomedical research broadly, not just on chimpanzees and, and not even just on animal models. Um, but in this situation, the NIH is, is a very relevant player because that is the federal entity that actually owns half of the chimps that are in research labs. And it is the primary funder has been historically and is currently um, the primary funder for the maintenance of chimps in laboratories. And so through the National Institutes of Health, um, a decision was or an action was proposed um, in, I believe, 2009, may have been 2010, in respect to a colony of chimpanzees that we have living on the Almogordo um, Air Force Base, or I'm sorry, the Holloman Air Force Base, um, which is called the Almogordo Primate Facility. And that facility houses approximately 100 chimpanzees that had for many years, um, even five years ago when this issue popped up, had not been used for research in some time. And so there was an effort by the um, Southwest National Primate Research Center, which is in Texas, to acquire that colony of 100 chimpanzees so that they could be used in research. And the notion of sending these chimps to another lab instead of retiring them, as was arguably required under the CHIMP Act, really created a lot of focus on the National Institutes of Health decisions regarding captive chimps. And that debate led the led several members of Congress to request that NIH solicit an objective review from the National Academies of Sciences. Um, and a body within the National Academy of Sciences called the Institute of Medicine, or IOM. The IOM conducted a rigorous, comprehensive review with, you know, uninterested scientific um, experts on the panel and came up with a very comprehensive report in 2011 that effectively said that there's not a single area of research 
um, for which that IOM panel agreed that chimps are necessary for. And so that really put to rest the scientific debate um, of whether chimp research is justifiable and, and beneficial for human health. And after that study came out, the National Institutes of Health, um, through the director, Francis Collins, immediately announced that NIH accepted the findings from IOM in full and that they were going to take action to implement those findings. And so that has really um, changed the tenor of the National Institutes of Health um, oversight of the captive chimpanzee colony and in particular has put into place some pretty rigorous standards in order to obtain any funding for any chimp research. And now what happened uh, with uh, your decision to go after split listing? Can you tell us how you, how you decided to approach that? Absolutely. So as I noted earlier, it's since 1990, there was a system in place whereby uh, chimpanzees in the wild were listed as endangered and chimpanzees in captivity were listed as threatened with this special rule that effectively said that they did not receive any protection under the Endangered Species Act. And because that regulation was put into place in 1990, the window for challenging the validity of that regulation closed in the mid-90s just due to general federal statutory limitations. And so the only way to reopen that issue was to submit a petition. And the Endangered Species Act lays out a very clear process by which interested members of the public um, can formally request that Fish and Wildlife change a listing of a species. And so we filed a petition, uh, the Humane Society of the United States, Humane Society International, uh, the Fund for Animals, Wildlife Conservation Society, the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, Pan-African Sanctuary Alliance, uh, Jane Goodall Institute, and the New England Anti-Vivisection Society, a rather large coalition of groups, submitted a petition in 2010 that really was a comprehensive look at both the threats to the species in the wild and the impacts of the lack of protection of individuals in captivity. Um, so we filed that in 2010, and that set off a, a multi-year process of review by the agency, um, including a status review where they solicited comments from you know other interested members of the public as well as African range states, and then led to a proposed rule in 2013, which was then finalized this year in the September 2015 that eliminated the split listing and provides that all chimps are listed as endangered. Yeah, that's it's really amazing. That's an amazing accomplishment. And and what was your opposition and what points were they making? So the opposition largely weighed in through that status review process, and there were certainly comments filed by the biomedical community stressing the importance of chimps in research. But again, the, the process by which, the timing of which the process played out was such that the IOM study with, you know, a panel of objective experts saying chimps are not needed for biomedical research provided a pretty significant backdrop for, you know, the specific laboratories that were interested in continuing that research to try to make the argument that they were, in fact, needed for research. But that was certainly the primary opposition. Uh, we also saw some opposition from some of these roadside zoo and other unaccredited exhibition facilities that don't think that it's in their interest to have to deal 
with the permitting aspect of the federal law. So what will be the implications for the chimpanzees? Is any research still possibly allowed? So the Endangered Species Act is a permitting system, and captive chimps are now on the same footing as all other captive endangered species. And what that means is that in order to conduct an activity that is prohibited, so whether it's a take or an interstate sale or an interstate commercial transport, for example, in order to conduct one of those activities, the person who wants to do that has to apply for a permit from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And those permits can only lawfully be issued for activities that promote the conservation of the species. And so there's a public notice and comment provision um, that allows, you know, interested stakeholders to weigh in on specific permit applications. And effectively, uh, because of that requirement, with respect to research in particular, what we have seen is that the laboratories have to date not applied for any permits. And there have been reports in the popular press that there is, in fact, no longer any invasive research occurring on captive chimps, despite the fact that we have 700 sitting in laboratories today. So what are they doing in those laboratories? Uh, What about non-invasive research? What exactly is non-invasive research? And is there an argument that that would still have to be permitted here? Does it depend on what it's like? Is that still unclear? It absolutely depends on how the research is occurring to determine whether or not research itself is a take of the animal. So, for example, something like a liver punch biopsy that very clearly creates an injury and wounds the animal, um, I think would very clearly be considered a take and and is something that I would include in, in the kind of more lay definition of invasive. Contrast that, for example, with observational behavioral research, which is, you know, happening more, in fact, in accredited zoos and accredited sanctuaries than in the laboratories, that type of research, um, arguably the research itself is not a take and not something that would trigger the need for a permit. But is there a gray area? Certainly, certainly. So there'll probably be more uh, litigation or uh, at least administrative proceedings regarding this in the future. Absolutely. We're, we're still kind of feeling out exactly what this means um, for chimps and, and certainly is a broader conversation that HSUS and other animal protection organizations have already started with the service when it comes to captive endangered species as a whole. Now, are there any exceptions for when more invasive research or, or anything that, that is considered a take can, can be performed? So the statute does allow for permits to be issued for scientific purposes that promote the conservation of the species. So if there were research that actually promoted the conservation of the species, then in theory a permit could be issued for that activity. So they might be able to look for cures for chimpanzee diseases but not cures for human diseases. In theory, yes, but I think that there's still a lot of question of whether that type of science would be justified, not under the Endangered Species Act, but in terms of the conservation Mm -hmm. benefits and the actual data that would come out of those types of studies. So why are these research facilities holding on to all these chimpanzees? 
Well, I think that what we're what we're hoping to see is is a large number of animals being retired in the near future through the NIH decisions after the IOM report came out. NIH announced that it was prepared to retire nearly all of the federally owned chimpanzees. So there's there's several hundred chimpanzees that are in laboratories right now that the federal government is prepared to send to sanctuary as soon as there is space in the sanctuary system. And so there's an effort afoot by Chimphaven right now to expand their facilities in order to be able to take in those individuals. So I think that we are going to see a large number of chimps retired in the coming years because of all of the success that we've had both under the ESA and under the NIH oversight of the research. Well, I hope that's true. I hope they don't fight it. But uh, I guess it's also new that they're still trying to figure out what their options are. But what does this mean for other chimpanzees? It's like we've been talking totally about research. What does it mean for chimpanzees in entertainment? So, um, should I say quote unquote entertainment? Yeah, quote unquote. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's tough sometimes to draw the lines between, you know, what is an entertainment use? What is an exotic pet use? Sometimes there's there's overlap there. You'll have somebody who you know keeps a chimpanzee in their basement and they film a commercial once every five years, for example, and it's hard to kind of draw a firm line between the pet and entertainment trade more broadly. Um, certainly you have some of the same breeders that are supplying animals for, for either use. Um, what's clear is that the Endangered Species Act absolutely prohibits sale across state lines of chimps for any reason other than enhancing the survival of the species in the wild. And so, for example, I think the Fish and Wildlife Service would agree that it is now illegal to engage in the pet trade. Um, for example, we have a few notorious breeders of chimpanzees in a couple states, and for those individuals to sell a pet chimp is now prohibited. So we it's a pretty significant impact on the domestic pet trade. In terms of entertainment, I think what really comes into um, play is the take prohibition. And so there's several different areas where HSUS would identify that a take of an animal of a chimp used in entertainment would occur. For example, in the past, we have documented that the way in which chimps are trained to perform certain actions is, is often under abusive tactics and, and certainly anything um, that causes physical harm to the animal would be considered a take and, and arguably it's not possible to convince a chimpanzee to perform tricks on cue without conducting those types of, of harmful activities. So that's one area. And then there's certainly other opportunities to apply the take prohibition that I do think apply pretty broadly to the entertainment industry. For example, one issue would be breeding of those animals per se, you know, breeding that is occurring outside of the AZA species survival plan, meaning breeding that is not um, adhering to any conservation science principles in and of itself could be considered a take. Certainly, when those individuals are bred for the pet and entertainment trade, they are routinely removed from their mother's care in order to try to make them more acclimated to human interaction. And that deprivation of the maternal bond and you know the impact of trying to, to tame these wild animals is certainly something that we have plenty of scientific evidence that that causes long-term 
long-term negative impacts on the behavior and, and welfare of the individual. So arguably, that's another area that is now prohibited by this listing. What about chimpanzees uh, in, in private hands? You know, every once in a while you hear about these people who have a chimpanzee in their backyard. There obviously aren't as many options to to reach those chimps. Would you say that the 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 possibility of of reaching those chimps uh, under this law have have been enhanced by getting rid of the split listing? Absolutely. I mean, I think that that's one area that is very promising. You know, in when we're talking in the biomedical context, we certainly have you know, several overlays of, of law that we're looking at. And, and when we're looking at the exhibition context, we, you know, at least have the Animal Welfare Act in play there. But when we're talking about individuals who own chimpanzees as exotic pets, barring any prohibition at the state level that, you know, regulates possession or provides certain standards of care, there's really no federal oversight over those animals but for having this endangered listing in place. And there's certainly, just like in the entertainment context, the opportunity to find prohibited takes that are occurring, for example, through social isolation or other types of, you know, kind of substandard husbandry that could negatively impact the well-being of that animal. That's that's great. I mean, it's great to hear that all these opportunities have been created. I, I know you also um, uh, have uh, some legislation pending in Congress, I believe, the Captive Primate Safety Act. Is that right? That's right. Yep. And what would that add? So the Captive Primate Safety Act adds primates to a list of prohibited wildlife species that are already included in a part of the Lacey Act which is called the Captive Wildlife Safety Act. So existing law right now generally prohibits big cats to be traded across state lines for the purpose of use as an exotic pet. The Captive Primate Safety Act would add all non-human primates to that list such that the interstate trade in those primates would be restricted to certain actors, and that does not include your general exotic pet owner. The way that that plays out with chimpanzees, I think it's very interesting, and I think that the Endangered Species Act actually provides more protection already through the ESA listing than the Captive Primate Safety Act would. For example, under the Captive Primate Safety Act, there would be a blanket exemption to that prohibition on trade for any facility that is licensed by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. So that would include both an ACA zoo and a roadside zoo. Under the Endangered Species Act, in comparison, uh, the requirements of who can engage in interstate commerce are far more limited. So I think that the Captive Primate Safety Act, while it would provide, while it would certainly apply to chimpanzees, has the capacity to provide much greater levels of protection to primate species that are not listed under the Endangered Species Act, which are some of the most common in the, in the pet trade, for example, macaques or certain spider monkeys or capuchin monkeys, um, some of those monkeys that are not as a species endangered and therefore are not protected under the Endangered Species Act. Yeah, that's. I mean, it's just an important reminder that as as enormous as this victory has been for chimpanzees, there are many, many other primates out there who are incredibly vulnerable, and you know, they are not really going to be helped by this. There's a lot left to be done. Absolutely. 
And every like this has been your clarity is amazing, and I feel like I've learned so much from from your story here. But in order to bring it all to life, can you tell us the story of just one chimpanzee who who was saved by your work? I mean, you have the great privilege of being in a position that you can actually kind of identify animals who are somewhere because of what you did. Um, can you tell us one story? Sure, I'm trying to think. There, there are so many particular animals that have been, you know, that HSUS has focused on over the years, and and in particular, you know, some of the individuals that we focus on the most are the older chimps who have been at research facilities for so many years, and you know, there are even many of these individuals who were captured from the jungle in Africa in order to be taken specifically into biomedical research labs in the, you know, 50s and 60s and early 70s before that international trade was prohibited. Um, so we've, we've definitely tried to provide sanctuary um, at the end of life to some of those individuals, like Flo is the name of one individual who is, you know, over 50 years old and, and has spent most of her life in a laboratory. And, you know, then also on the other end, of the spectrum, some of the much younger individuals who were bred in captivity for specifically for use in invasive research. And we don't always have names for those individuals, but, you know, another project that we worked on in, in, the, in the years that we were working on all these different layers of, of the chimp issue was in regards to chimpanzees that were being bred pursuant to a contract with the National Institutes for Allergy and Infectious Disease, an actual government contract that was in place that paid a laboratory to produce, quote, four to 11 disease-free infants per year. And so, you know, we've been focused kind of on both ends of the spectrum, primarily some of these individuals that are bred into life in the laboratory that may be there for 50 to 60 years. And also these older individuals who have been in the laboratory sometimes for 50 years being subjected to invasive techniques. Yeah, it's it's all just so heartbreaking, but it's all just so so amazing that you have had success. And, and I just want to thank you for, for laying out everything that's happened here because it, I think it really demonstrates to people that these aren't one-step processes. There's a lot of work that goes into, in, into achieving any success and, and a lot of roadblocks in the way. But I want to congratulate you on what so far has been a great year for your work and, and I will be hoping to hear from you more uh, with more successes for more animals in the future. Thank you so much. Yeah, I really, I appreciate your kind words and it's certainly been an exciting time with all of the um, benefits that we're seeing for captive chimps and, and we're hopeful that we'll continue riding this wave. Thanks, Anna. Okay, there's an update. After I spoke to Anna... An amazing thing happened, and I like to think it's because of the podcast. (laughs) Probably not. But as you probably know or you may know, the National Institutes of Health just announced that it's going to end completely its support for invasive research on chimpanzees, and it's going to retire the 50 chimps that it had been holding in reserve for future biomedical research. So that is just great news. What is not as great is that there's still not enough room in the sanctuaries for all of the chimps that they have, but that is that is moving forward, and they will be moving more chimpanzees to the sanctuary uh, at Chimp Haven, and 
they're going to, they apparently have room to take 25 chimpanzees immediately and will be making space for 25 more in 2016. So that's great news. We need more chimp sanctuaries. We, and it, it, soon, let's hope that, that they're all in sanctuary. And thank you so much to the wonderful work by, uh, from Anna Frostick. And, and I'm so glad she was here to tell us that story right before this wonderful development happened. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Animal Law Podcast. The Animal Law Podcast is part of the Our Hen House podcast family, and you can also listen to our signature weekly Our Hen House podcast. You can find it on iTunes or Stitcher or on ourhenhouse.org. There are nearly 300 episodes already recorded, so you've got your work cut out for you. As a 501c3, Our Hen House relies on your contributions to keep our work going and to keep vegan indie media alive. So we hope you'll support us by becoming a flock member. It's $15 a month or $150 a year. And if you do, we'll send you a tote bag and exclusive login info. And that will give you access to exclusive content, giveaways, and it will also give you access to the vibrant private Our Hen House Facebook group where people are having the most interesting, fascinating discussions every single day. You can go to OurHenHouse.org and click on Donate. Follow us, please, on Facebook and Twitter, at OurHenHouse, and you can contact us by clicking on Contact at OurHenHouse.org or just by emailing us at info at OurHenHouse.org. I'm Marianne Sullivan. Thank you so much for being here today. So long. <laughs>